I am an alcoholic. I'm also a square bottle drunk. Uh, a friend of mine asked me if I would be nervous talking to you people. Um, I said, yeah, I will be, but I know my subject. Uh, <laughs> I am a qualified alcoholic. I have a master's degree. I have achieved all phases of alcoholism. I thesis was on isolation and spiritual deprivation and bankruptcy. So I know the disease. I, um, with God's help and your help, I'll continue to learn about recovery. But I do know what it is to be an alcoholic. I remember my childhood, eight or nine years old, I was panicky once. My parents were away and my dad came home, a physician and gave him some paragoric, and I remember the tremendous elation and the peace of the world I had with that. And uh, on another occasion, I had a laceration. I was given some morphine because I was screaming, of course. And I remember the peace, complete peace, and the serenity I had with, with those chemicals. Um, certainly, that was a very um, alarming response. And I guess I really first found that I could depend on alcohol to relieve all of my pain in college. It allowed me, gave me the grease to be socially accepted. I was finally uh, someone important to other people, I thought. Uh, I was unaware that my social group was very narrow, very small, very narrow-minded, and held men on drinking on almost any occasion. Uh, soon after that, uh, through medical school, which somehow I got through, uh, and on into practice, it, I was drinking every day. Um, most mornings I was hurting more than my patients. Somehow I managed to educate the kids that needed to in my family, I had six of them, managed to continue my practice, although it was floundering always. I didn't understand why the new guys that came into town spent their Sunday afternoon dictating charts and catching up. I thought that was because they were inefficient and because I taught my patients how to stay well. Well, I was obviously in a great deal of denial. I stayed with my family and my wife for 26 years. A few good days, a lot of bad days. Um, but there was the only place I could live at the time. Uh, one of the issues with my ex-wife is she did stay with me and it was a place that I could live without killing myself during those 26 years. And that's what it took to get me where I'm here today, so I'm grateful. I'm grateful the dues that I pay once a month to her. Those are back taxes I owe for her being with me, for me staying alive during that time. Um, I think in today's uh, recovery market, I probably would have been intervened on a little bit earlier, but at that time, that was the best I could do, and I survived. I became a square bottle drunk about four years ago when I realized that the plastic vodka bottle kept scooting away from me under my king-size bed at night. So I figured if I put the vodka in the Jim Bean bottle, it was always there when I needed it. Uh, I had a physical bankruptcy about three years ago. I had a fractured foot and trying to move a 400-pound marble slab by myself, which seemed appropriate at the time, and was in the hospital a few days with uh, elevated sugars deranged electrolytes, hypertension, and so forth. And I said, okay, now, get this foot 
fixed. I won't drink for a while, and I'm okay. Uh, so I submitted to my five-day evaluation, and six months later I left Mississippi with the knowledge that I probably shouldn't drink again. And I honestly believe at the time I was trying to do everything I can to comply, to find out this program, um, to understand what I needed to do to stop drinking. But apparently I wasn't ready. And D.P. Smith finally just said, boy, we've done all we can for you. And um, he didn't finish the sentence, but it would have been, go back home and drink again, then call us. And I did that. I remember getting home. Uh, I was going through court proceedings with my ex-wife and trying to establish a practice and trying to uh, live a dry drunk and uh, it was absolute chaos, absolute chaos and being an alcoholic the obvious solution was to, to drink and I found that again alcohol relieved all this stuff and uh, I remember again the complete ablation of all the tension and anxiety with just a six-pack of beer and I couldn't stop my disease had progressed during that six months and I drank around the clock for four days before I was uh, again consented to go into treatment um, on the condition that since I lost my keys my cars and my money then confiscated that someone gave me a six-pack and I would go to treatment I did got there with it blood alcohol, blood alcohol level of 500 and tried to leave went into the uh, Velcro program, Velcro on all extremities for a few days. And when I began to clear, I not only realized I couldn't drink, but I needed to make some changes. And I again was extremely compliant. I went to Atlanta for three months. Uh, I had an invention up there that said, uh, guy, you're not doing, you're not understanding what we're telling you. And I went to one of my um, peers there that I respect a lot and ask him, what do I do? And the answer was, fake it until you get it right. And so I continued to do what they, I did everything they told me to do. I worked on the issues with my parents and uh, my ex and the children and all the deprivation and the wreckage of my life. And I came home and I was better. I was not well, obviously. And, and um, this time I jumped in with AA and a good sponsor. Went to a meeting a day for a year, the first year. And somewhere about six months after that, I began to understand what you people have. I began to, uh, I hope, become a winner. Um, I've stayed with my meetings, uh, my extremely strong Caduceus support group. I got into a two-year PRN recovery network meets once a week and um, supported my wife and throughout all this something happened and it was what Sylvia told me out in, in uh, Mississippi she was our big book tutor and she says the idea of this book and this program is to find you a higher power at the time I didn't understand that um, but I do have a higher power call him God. I'm in touch with him every day. I pray every night for the things I have achieved during that day. I pray that the things I did wrong, I will not do wrong again. 
And I thank him for not letting me need to drink that day. And then later that night or the next morning, I will ask him, please give me the courage and the strength not to have to drink today. And so far, it's, it's, it's working. Uh, life is beautiful. My practice is, is thriving. I lost it completely. I have a beautiful wife now. <clears throat> My children are back in the fold. They're talking to me and calling me and have a very wonderful relationship. I have some very dear friends in my AA, uh, both the lay groups and the uh, caduceus, and I belong. I'm a viable cog in my community. I'm relearning how to live with people, how to practice medicine with compassion and understanding, and it's only by being with people like you that I can keep this this going and I'm very grateful for you being here with me today. And for a topic, if you don't mind, I would like to hear what some of you have done to get in touch with the higher power that Sylvia says we all must have to maintain this program. So I'd like to hear from anyone in the audience who could help me understand what they did and maybe what would help me uh, in my relationship with my God. Anyone care to come up and uh, say a few words? My name is Hank and I'm an alcoholic. You're talking about staying in a marriage. Um, alcoholism absolutely ruined my first marriage. It kept me in it, which should have I should have gotten out of a long time ago. I don't think it kept me alive. It kept me in a really bad deal. I hear a lot people saying, oh, it wrecked me. It sure did. Um, there are three types of alcoholics, type 1 alcoholics, type 2 alcoholics, and alcoholics of our type, as the big book says, and I'm an alcoholic of our type. Higher powers are funny things. I, uh, two and a half years ago, when I finally, after eight years of being a newcomer, achieved more than 30 days of sobriety, actually more than 21 days of sobriety, I think it was. I was, uh, I was uh, defensive, uh, fearful, pessimistic, um, alcoholic who was a pessimistic agnostic. And because I wasn't dried out yet, Barney Nixon, may rest in peace, said that there were four four bases of sobriety, like there are four bases in a baseball game. And first base is physical sobriety. And second base was mental sobriety, which is kind of like neurological sobriety. And third base was emotional sobriety, and home plate was spiritual sobriety. And it was his idea. He was a very knowledgeable Jesuit priest. A lot of people may have known him. I never knew him. I just heard him on tape. That, that you got to touch all bases in turn. And Bill Daniels I don't, I don't know if he made it up, but he's the first one I heard say it, is that you don't have a brain for a year, and I didn't have a brain for almost a year and a half. And so during that year and a half of going to meetings and putting up with what I thought was impossible amateur theology regarding higher powers, one day I think I'd finally been physically sober enough to be neurologically sober enough to think a little more clearly 
and to realize that with step two, that the essence of step two for me was not higher power, step two for me was hope. And that what happened with the people who got sober, because this was written after the fact, was that somehow something had happened that they began to hope and think that it was possible, that, that, that the idea had come into their minds that somehow they could survive. And the idea that came into my mind that somehow I could survive was because I looked out and saw people who had been around a lot longer than I had, whose stories were a lot more grievously uh, serious than I figured mine was, and I figured that they had survived. And I was able to put two and two together by that time and figure that they must be doing something right, so I think I would do it too. And what happened is that step two was hope. And since higher power, since I had no power, if I was going to survive, it had to take something greater than me because I, I knew I couldn't do it because I tried to do it on my own. And then I got into semantics about what I was going to call higher powers, how I was going to describe it. And I went through the usual stuff that was written about, and you see it in the grapevine and all. And it, the idea of, of higher power from a spiritual sense or in, the, or in a theological sense, which I came back to, sort of oozed in on me. It didn't leap in on me. I didn't have any of these flashes or anything like that. But, but what happened was that, that out of hope and experience and a realization that I personally had no power whatsoever, that any, any power that could save me had to be higher than I was. And so I had to content myself with that, realizing at the time that this may last forever that I may have to go through life as a secular alcoholic in a room full of a bunch of amateur theologians. Shows you how much I knew. But I hung in there long enough to dry out enough and soak in the true essence of spirituality enough that, that the concepts of higher power evolved through more amorphous Greco-Roman and Buddhist uh, concepts back to the Judeo-Christian roots that I had, which seemed to fit me best. So, so high, that, that process, it was a process for me which took, oh, almost, a, I guess, a year and a half of physical sobriety to crystallize. And so that's how it was for me. Thanks. Good morning. I'm Marvin. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you, guy. <clears throat> I kind of understood your question. You <clears throat> wanted to suggest perhaps how we get in touch with a higher power and how we may draw on a higher power. And Well, I can tell you <clears throat> how it came about with me. <clears throat> and a book certainly does say there, the main object of this book is to help you find a power which will solve your problems. For a long time, you see, I was looking for me to get the power. That is not apparently the way it's supposed to happen. If I can find the power, then the power will solve my problem. So <clears throat> I had to kind of enter a spiritual kindergarten. I was <clears throat> raised in the good old Southern Baptist Church and 
I knew a lot about God. I knew about my preacher's God, and I knew about my mother's God, and about my father's God, and my brother's God, but I didn't know my God. And the God that I knew about was not one that was very likely to have much to do with me when I got real honest and started looking at the things I had been doing. But you know, that chapter, We Agnostics, is the one in my book that I come back to most often. The people who wrote that book, they were alcoholics too, and they knew how many of us would turn off our hearing aids in effect when the word God was brought up. And <clears throat> they, they said, Martin, we know, and then they wrote that chapter for me, we know how you feel about God. We know that you have been turned off, and I had. So we're going to give you a new understanding of God. And they wrote the chapter, we and they called it We Agnostics for me. And through that chapter, I really entered a spiritual kindergarten. Now, I had been kind of entered on the postgraduate level as I came up in the good old Southern Baptist Church. I had not been given the basis of a spiritual life, and that chapter certainly gives us a basis of a spiritual life. As to for which we can build on. And when I came in here and <clears throat> the spirit, the kindergarten, I, the way I started was with a hypothesis, really. You see, I heard all these other people saying they had found the power and the power had solved their problems, not just their drink problems, but all their living problems. And someone said to me one day, well, look, Martin, if you can't believe all that we're telling you, believe that we believe. Now, that's where I started believe that we believe. So I started with the hypothesis that there is a higher power that can and will solve my problem. And as I acted on that belief, that hypothesis really, I began to feel better. And the more I acted on that belief, the better I felt. And the more I continued to act on that belief, the nearer I drew to him. And when I drew near enough, he disclosed himself to me and then I knew. Now that's the archway through which I made contact with this higher power. So <clears throat> my higher power then became and still is. To me, it's invisible power. This is my God, known to be real by the results produced in me in my life. Now our textbook, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a, you know, we're not so much into problem solving here, but we're, as we are into solution working. And the book tells me there's two conditions, well, really three conditions on which I must have before I can expect, really, to get much response from my higher power. And one is total abandonment of self. That is the big hurdle for me, to get self out of the way. And the other is when we read about the section on sex, which begins on the bottom, I think, of page 68 or so, in that it says the right answer will come if we want it. A lot of times when I pray for things, I really don't want the right answer. You know, I want my answer. And the third one is on page 464 where it says we'll get the right, our answer if our own house is in order. So, you know, <clears throat> sometimes when I'm praying and nothing seems to be happening, I need to look at my own house, see if it's in order, if I expect to get some results, you know. I find now that my higher power is always there. No matter where I am, he is. All I have to do is to become 
consciously aware of it. You know, many of us feel, and I certainly do, that the greatest thing in my life is when I became consciously aware of the presence of God. You know, the, the, the thing I, <coughs> part of our book that <coughs> always sticks up to me like a red flag is on page 63, it says, as we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. Thank you very much. I'm Jim, and I'm an alcoholic. I somehow knew Martin would be stand-up second. Yeah. You're talking about a higher power, and uh, I had the same feeling about that. I did a lot of things when I got here, uh, in that it wasn't that I rejected a concept of a higher power, God, or anything like that. I, it didn't bother me too much. I just thought I knew something about it. And fortunately, uh, I was beaten into sweet reasonableness over a period of a couple of years of drinking in Alcoholics Anonymous. I think it's a wonderful place to drink if you're going to drink, is here. Uh, and, the, and, and in continuing to drink and to use other drugs in the loving fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, it was explained to me that I was not the power greater than myself and that I wasn't here by... Uh, anything other than a, a loving God as I understand him and the power of coincidence came into my life I there's signal points in my life that I remember I can remember very clearly the first IDAA meeting I was at I can describe it it was in 1975 and I came down to it carrying a duck call because I didn't really think that doctors in AA should practice separately I got my sobriety in street AA, but it was enhanced in here. It was implanted. It was uh, it, something was done for me in this group that couldn't be done out there. And that was a man who stood up in 75 and described a spiritual experience in front of a lot of overeducated people and very intelligent men in no uncertain terms and very clearly showed that something had happened in his life that I wanted to happen in mine, and I was to be using for another two years after that. And during that two-year period, there were people sent into my life briefly, some of them, only a month or two, another man a year, who came into my life and taught me what I needed to know right then. The first guy that I sponsored after being around AA for a couple of years kept me sober. He was a street junkie. Maybe a sixth grade education, maybe. As he put it, he looked and walked and talked like Donald Duck. And I had to pick him up every week and take him to a meeting every day. And he'd call me at three in the morning and I'd call him at three in the morning. I released myself to do what my impulses told me to do. I gave myself the freedom that God gives me to do as I should do and pleased to do. I don't think we can look for God. I think he finds us. All I have to do is kind of keep a quiet awareness and look around at the people I know because my God doesn't speak to me in voices. 
uh, it talks to me through people. And I know the faces that, that God have, has talked to me through. Some are dead. My first pigeon died at 32 of lung cancer, the guy that kept me alive. And uh, another man was in town for a brief period of six months. I ran into him at this meeting in Los Angeles. He picked up on me. He could smell a user from across the room. Came to Cincinnati. He taught there for about a year and then moved on. He pulled a nitrous oxide machine out of my office and kept it in the trunk of his car for six months to keep me alive. There are others. There are a lot more. There are people in here right now that, uh, that I heard. They said something right when my mind was clear and it locked into it. And I don't know when that's going to be. I really don't know. But my God has to have skin on it. My God is the guy standing on either side of me when we're saying the Lord's Prayer. But when I first got here, I didn't want to touch anybody. I didn't want to touch anybody. And now it's, that's where it comes from. It comes from either side of me. I don't have to look for my God. I think G.K. Chesterton said it best, and I heard this a long time ago. Just, I, I sought my God, my God I could not see. I sought my soul. My soul eluded me. I sought my brother and found all three. Thank you. David, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, Damon Runyon uh, was a member of the Oxford group, and uh, I read his story. I joined the Oxford group so that I could understand the AA program. It was a big help to me. And uh, they told him that he would have to uh, read the Bible where he said he picked up many items of interest in there. And one of them was that if any among you think he is wise, let him become a fool that he may become wise. And that identified with my drunkalogue. I thought, well, it did a lot to reduce the shame that... Uh, no matter how far down you have gone, it serves a useful purpose. And the other thing that uh, helped me that he said was uh, the Old Testament could be summed up to the 23rd Psalm. He said it could be summed up to the first sentence of the 23rd Psalm, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that that was step three and that was step seven. And that also was the power of positive thinking. And whenever I would get despair, or whenever I do get despair during the day, I follow that advice that's in the textbook of Alcoholics Anonymous as you start on step 11, where it says memorize certain verses that you can repeat during the day. And when it looks absolutely hopeless or frustrating, I just, uh, I know I'm not alone. I just say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it works out better than I'd ever be able to work it out. Thank you very much. Hi, everybody. I'm still an alcoholic, and my name's Elliot. And uh, this is a good topic for me. I'd just like to relate that when I was going through my 90 and 90 in Atlanta, Six years ago, I had a wonderful experience with a rabbi, Yolan uh, Feldman, who explained to me the concept of time in the, in the Jewish religion, that the Jewish religion is, is based on the lunar calendar, and Passover is celebrated 
on the third full moon of the year. And the third full moon of the year was a good time to get free from slavery, to get out of Egypt. Whether it was 1984 BC or 1984 AD, this is the time I was going through my 90 and 90 in March and April of 1984. And it's just incredible to me that there are all these people who are not in AA who are talking about getting out of slavery, being freed from bondage. They were intervened on by their higher power. And then they went wandering in the desert. And while I was going to meetings, counting the days to pick up my red ship, they were counting the days to get the Ten Commandments. 49th day, they were given the Ten Commandments. And that was just incredible because I was getting the 12 steps. And the Ten Commandments and the 12 steps are basically similar about getting close to God and developing your character, which is something I had neglected to do up to that point. Thanks. Thanks, Elliot. My name's Martha, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. You know, I was thinking, I, I can't remember who was talking, but I was thinking about what the big book says. It, it, it talks about how lack of power is our dilemma. And if lack of power is our dilemma, then the solution is a higher power. My problem with that was the same thing that some other people referred to. I mean, I thought I was my higher power. And there are times in my sobriety that I still uh, think that, although it's nothing like it was when I was drinking and, and, and when I was using. I, too, was uh, raised in uh, a Southern Baptist, uh, real strict, religious environment. And part of my recovery has, in some sense, been getting away from that, and part of that has been getting in touch with what I, I was taught as a, as a child. And one of the things that I remember being taught about what God is, and to me today, my higher power uh, uh, is a God as I understand him. But, you know, I remember as a kid being taught that God is love. And um, um, it, it, it helps me to keep it very simple. And that is very simple, and there is a great truth in that simplicity. It's like the longer I stay sober... Um, Sometimes the better I am able to see tr a truth in that kind of simplicity. And I, I, can, I can think about how God is love and what I feel just being in this room this morning and being in rooms like this back in Atlanta, my home group, or anywhere else in the country for that matter where, where I have gone to meetings. And, and that power and that power and how it can work through other people that have been rather strategically placed in my life, um, how that power works in my life in daily circumstances. And you know, there are some days that I can really, I can see God. I mean, I can see that power, I can feel that power um, in, in most things that I do. And then there are other days that I feel very distant and I'm not quite as plugged in uh, to that power. And I, I think you know, I, I do believe that what we have is a daily reprieve contingent on maintenance of our, our spiritual condition. And striving to maintain that spiritual condition, there are times that I just have to walk the walk. Uh, and then there are times that I really feel 
very peaceful and, and, and very serene, and I, I know, uh, it's not that I just believe, I mean I know at the, the bottom of my soul that God works in, in my life and, and in yours. I just wish I could have that 24 hours a day all the time, but that I don't think is, uh, is humanly possible. I, um, I've come to believe that a big part of what this program offers me besides my life, because there's no question in my mind that I would have been dead had, had I not uh, come in here, and I certainly didn't come in here of my own free will. Uh, I think God worked in my life, even when I was drinking and using, I could just never see it and work through the people that helped get me here and in the treatment and continue to work in, in my life. But I, I've come to believe that a whole lot of what this is is um, um, God and me and, and just trying to develop that and to, to seek the presence of God in um, my life on, on a daily basis. And if you could have told me 10 years ago that I would have ever given a twit about that, I would have said no, and it's like that's the most important. I feel more spiritual and I'm more conscious of God working in my life uh, through others and through circumstances when I'm grateful. And I try to be grateful every, every day. Some days are better than others. Well, some days I'm sicker than others and some days I'm better than others. Uh, but, but basically I am real grateful to be alive, to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and a member of IDAA and I'm real, real grateful for my sobriety. There's a gentleman that's, that's here, I don't think he's here this morning, that talks a lot at these early morning meetings about an attitude of gratitude. And I remember hearing him a number of years ago and he, he said that he got up every morning and got down on his knees and he thanked God for his life, his membership in Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, um, his sobriety. And I've been doing that for a few 24 hours. I just happened to listen to a tape just the other day from this guy, and I couldn't remember where I heard that. And that was, that was where I've heard it. And it's, it's like uh, that helps me start the day off. And if I can get down on my knees during the day, and if I can hang on to that attitude of gratitude, because I think that's a prayer, uh, being grateful. And there's not a lot of room in my life for the other crap if, uh, if the gratitude is there. I'm real grateful to, to be here. I'm real grateful that my higher power has seen fit to work in my life in, in a lot of different um, ways, and I'm real grateful for my sobriety. Thanks, Ellen. My early religious experiences. We need one more person to share, and then we'll close with the Lord's Prayer. Now, colleague. Um, Bill Wilson prayed a prayer that was answered. Uh, he said, there is one who has all power, that one is God. May you find him now. And uh, that prayer that he prayed was, was answered for me. I had to do something too, and I, I remember when I was in treatment, I, I looked around in the middle of the night and made sure the other three people in treatment in my unit were, were uh, in the swamp, were asleep, and I got down on my knees and that was real scary for me, and, I, and I, just, I just said, God help. I didn't have enough esteem about me to say, God help me. I just said, God help. And, and from that time on, things began to happen. And uh, Marianne, my counselor, said, uh, maybe your God is too small. And uh, that really, uh, 
and as a urologist I could say that, um, <laughs> but um, she was right. And she and uh, another guy on the unit and uh, the guy I did my fifth step with and uh, a lot of people at that, at that treatment began to introduce me to a new kind of God, God as we understood him. And, um, and God has continued to grow for me in the, in the tables, in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and now God, as I understand her, is, loves me like a giant mother. God has gotten a lot less masculine, a lot more feminine. I, I use this shirt sometimes to talk about this is striped shirt as we understand it. And, and to some people, they, they, they get the point about God as we understand God. I, I had a spiritual director. He was killed in an automobile accident. And, uh, and I sought another one. And, and I went to him, and, I, and, and he says, uh, I said, I'm here for spiritual direction. And, he said, how's step t 10 coming for you? And I said, well, you know, it's step 11, you know, sought through prayer and meditation. And he said, how's step 10 coming for you? And I said, well, you know, that's continued to take a personal inventory. And he says, yeah, well, if you haven't, he said, how's step 10 coming for you? And I said, well, I'm not doing that. He said, well, how do you expect to take step 11 if you haven't taken step 10? So he asked me how step 10 went for me. And I said, well, uh, I usually say, well, uh, you know, I, I review the day you were a turd and you're a nerd and you, and you did the wrong thing yesterday and you'll probably do it again because you've been doing it all your life and, and, you, and you've not got a chance in this program. And he said, stop. He said, we'll have none of that. He said, you don't have enough, enough information to judge you. And I thought, if I don't have enough information to judge me, who does? And then I saw another thing about God. You know, and God doesn't judge me. He said, I hope your tenth step goes like this. I hope that at night you're just grateful for everything in your day that comes up in front of you. Everything, just, just say thank you for the awareness of, of, of that in my day and, and, and decide if you want it in your day tomorrow or not. And, and that helped me a whole lot. And, and now I kind of, in the morning I light a candle and I just sit there and I, and I try and be grateful. And, and, I'm aware of a, of, a, of a space inside me, kind of a, an empty space. And I think that's the space that somebody, somebody said, it's the hole in your gut that the wind blows through, that, that, that we as incomplete and early alcoholics really feel in that, that huge hole. And I think that space is God's space. And that's the space that God has to fill or leave empty as, as, as she decides to do for me that day. That space I filled with alcohol, that space I filled with nicotine, that space I filled with sex, and I was with a bunch of people last night who were looking for ice cream and we'd have shot it up IV, you know, uh, <laughs> if, if we could have found it. Uh, and that space inside is a space that my addict wants full and that I can't fill, and I have to let God as as I understood him, as I, or as I understand her, fill up, and I'm, I'm, and this is where my cup overflows. Thanks.